The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, dear brothers and sisters. Amen. So, so several years ago, I had the honor to preside over a funeral of a, of a beloved family member, uh, a member of my extended family. The service went rather well, uh, at least that's what I was told. But there was one thing that really stuck with me that I wish I had done differently. You know, whenever we're confronted with death, we often don't know what to say, do we? Uh, so we show up to funerals in support of those we love, and we find, our, we find ourselves saying things that are really unhelpful, right? And it would have been better for us to just kind of keep our mouths shut and just offer our condolences and our support. Well, we're well-meaning, but we don't know what to do with this problem of death. And so at this funeral, I was asked to read a poem after my sermon, and uh, I learned a hard lesson. That was my first funeral. And I learned a hard lesson that day because I actually said yes, that I would read the poem. And um, this poem, was a, it was a favorite of certain family members. And uh, it talked about the dash that goes between the day that you're born and the day that you die. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've probably heard it read at funerals. But what the poem says is that all that matters... All that matters is what you do with that dash. So the message is essentially this. Try harder to be a better person because you want the people at your funeral to say good things about you. Go read the poem. I think it's called The Dash. That's what it's about. I learned a hard lesson that day. There I was preaching the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus and his victory over uh, sin, death, and the devil for us. I was preaching his victory over death only to follow it up with a new age, moralistic, therapeutic poem about making your life count. And it was in that moment that I was reading it that I realized I had just undone every single thing that I said that had any kind of worth or value. I preached the gospel to people only to throw them back on themselves to uh, for them to rely upon their own efforts to make their lives count in this world. What a heavy burden I was placing on them. What a Christless message. What a crossless message. You're going to die one day and it's up to you to ensure that you are not forgotten. I wonder how many people actually took the message to heart that day only to discover that no matter, no matter how hard they tried, they could not make sense of their lives, its purpose or their meaning left to themselves. Well, in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon conducted an experiment. He wanted to see what life was all about. He wanted to ask the hard question that we often find ourselves wondering, what does any of this mean? What is this all about? And so he examined every aspect of temporal life that he could. And he called this everything under the sun. He says that phrase 27 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun, all of temporal life. And what he discovered is that everything under the sun was meaningless, pointless, John got up here at the lectern earlier, and the first thing that he read was vanity of vanities. 
all is vanity. And that's what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 1, verse 2. Nothing means anything. Welcome to church. And if we as 21st century American optimists will blush at that and we will say, you can't say that in church. He says in verses 12 through 14, Solomon says that he is king over Israel, that he had everything at his fingertips and he had been there, done that. He had seen it all and all was vanity. That's the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. In chapter 1, it's about the pointless existence of everything under the sun, how everything comes and goes, and it's all vanity. Even the pursuit of wisdom itself is vanity. Why is that? Because with great wisdom comes great sorrow. You might know more stuff, but the more stuff you know, the sadder you become because you know how awful reality can be. So in chapter 2, he actually commits himself to hedonistic living. Hedonistic living, meaning he indulged every whim and every desire that he had. He pushed it all the way to the max. He acquired everything that he could with all the resources that he had as a king, only to find out that it only satisfied him temporarily. But then in verses 12 uh, 12 through 17, in response to that, then he resolves to live wisely which that compels us to nod our heads. And we're saying, yep, that's what he should have been doing the whole time, right? But guess what? He found out that that too is vanity because the wise person and the fool both go in the ground in the end. Who's better off for it? Even the hard work that he committed himself to in verses uh, 18 through 23, he found those things to be meaningless as well. They were fruitless because it would all burn up at some point. What is he left with in the end? Someone else is going to enjoy his spoils. Someone who did not even work for it. If I may be so bold, your life often feels like a hamster wheel. And you too come to the same conclusions that Solomon did. What does any of it mean? Does any of it matter? Is the work that I engage in every single day, whether it's you have a full-time job, whether you're retired, the stuff that you do every day, is it satisfying? Am I doing enough with my dash? What is the point of any of this? It's all the same day after day. You wake, you sleep, you rest, you work. You get out of the routine occasionally, you get away, you take those vacations, you catch your breath only to jump back on the hamster wheel, rinse and repeat, and that is your life. And you wonder where this is all going. And if you thought, if you thought about all of this long enough, if you took a good, honest, hard look at your life under the sun, you would realize that you are chasing bubbles that burst. The second that you acquire something, it only slips through your fingers and you're on to the next thing. There's a reason I did this with our kids earlier. The bubbles that burst, that's a very real thing. That is a biblical image, a biblical metaphor. This is what we do in our lives. We strive and we strive and we strive and we finally get that thing we've been chasing and then it bursts in our hands. So Solomon's message leaves us gasping for a lifeline, anything to help us to escape from what we know to be all too real. Life under the sun can often be excruciating. It's often unfair. 
And any pleasure that we experience is here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's fleeting. And we cycle through our days in hopes that our days will actually amount to something in the end. In the, cycle, in the grand scheme of eternity, we hope that it will all matter. You live your life as if that's true. Take it from Solomon. Everything under the sun, including our temporal lives, if left to us, will amount to nothing. All that it takes is the passage of time. And your life is but a vapor. But where did that leave Solomon? Did that leave him to embrace pure nihilism? You know what I mean by that? Nihilism, that's just where you live as if nothing matters at all. Is that where Solomon was? So I'm just going to go ahead and live as if nothing matters in this world. Have you ever met a nihilist? If they say they're a nihilist, they're probably lying. Because they naturally live as if all of this matters. Are we left to embrace this type of thinking? Are we left to an existence that is completely devoid of meaning? What was Solomon's answer? What is our answer? Everything under the sun is indeed vanity, and pursuing any of it is striving after the wind. But mercifully, that is not the end of the experiment. And we know that that is not where we are left, brothers and sisters in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 21, we're, giving, we're given this glimpse of a solution. Watch this. It says, Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Now Solomon probably did not realize it at the time whenever he was composing this passage, but hidden within this often overlooked section of Scripture is the remedy for the meaninglessness and the futility that encompasses all of creation. Here is the solution. There is one who has labored with all wisdom, all knowledge, and all, all skill, only to leave it all to be enjoyed by someone else. Namely, you and me. The prophet Malachi would later prophesy of a great son of righteousness that would dawn upon mankind. It would rise with healing in its wings upon those who fear the name of, of God. Life under the sun left to itself is only vanity. It's dross to be burned up on the last day. But life under the sun, S-O-N, sun, that is something altogether different. That is different. Solomon did not know him by name yet, but his grasping for the truth led him eventually back to faith in God and God's promise of a future Messiah. That Messiah would come, ironically enough, that Messiah would come through Solomon's bloodline. Solomon, the very one who's wrestling with all this stuff, wondering what it all means. And it's through Solomon's bloodline that God provides an answer. Long ago, the great enemy of God, the devil, he, he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. We're, we're all familiar with the story for the most part. And he was successful in getting them to doubt God's word. He was successful in getting them to turn away from what was external to themselves, to God's word and what he has said, and to turn inward on themselves. So here's what he did. All of a sudden, mankind was now going to derive our identity and our worth 
by turning inward, getting our meaning from anything except from God. Therefore, all of creation was subject to the bondage of futility. According to uh, Romans chapter 8, all of creation, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. That is, of course, unless God did something about it. So whenever we fell on that day, God promised one who would come to crush the serpent's head and rescue us from a futile existence. The Bible calls him the Word, the Logos, the one who was with God and the one who was God. And that Word, that Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us to redeem us from our sins. That word logos, I, I use that Greek not just to impress you, but to show you and point out that that means a bunch of different things. Among those meanings are this. Ready? Reason and meaning. Logos. The very meaning and reason for all things became flesh in Jesus Christ. He stepped into our existence so that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, all things would be given meaning and fulfillment in him. Everything that you do as a child of God matters. Whether it's pushing paper to draw a paycheck, whether it's baking a loaf of bread, whether it's walking around Dana Peak Park, whether it's checking your mail, it all matters because of your identity in Christ, your baptismal identity. Your life is now no longer bound to earthly things, but it is bound to Christ, and your life is hidden in Him. Therefore, whenever Christ, according to our epistle lesson, whenever Christ, who is your life, who is your meaning, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So Solomon eventually came to realize that there was no hope of anything good apart from life in God. And his conclusion was that there's no choice. There's no choice but to hope in him. In Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 through 25, he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Here's his conclusion. Life can be simple. We don't have to be bothered by the burdensome questions of life because they all find their solutions in God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness. Solomon realized that he was free to enjoy his life as it was, not for its own sake, but because everything in his life came from the hand of God who wanted, wanted him to have good things. Isn't that great? That's great. Everything in your life can be enjoyed apart from sin. Everything from the hand of God. And so we receive it as a gift. Eating, drinking, enjoyment, all blessings from the hand of God who loved us so much that he gave us his son. And if he has given us his son, how will he not in eternity give us all things? Your friends and your neighbors are scratching and clawing at the surface of the earth in search of meaning, in search of purpose. 
Imagine what a witness that your life is to them. Because here's what this means for you. It means that behind every good experience that you have, whether it's taking a, 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 a huge bite of delicious, juicy steak, or whether it's cramming a McDonald's fry into your mouth, it means that you get a glimpse of, you get a picture of the God who loves you, the one who forgives all of your sins and sends to you these temporal blessings so that you might know something, something of what he has for you in eternity. It means that whenever you experience the hardships of this life, you do not do so because you are at the mercy of a meaningless universe. Did you hear me? You are not at the mercy of the vastness of nothingness. Far from it. It means that even your sufferings, even your sufferings, which you will suffer, that's viewed through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. Your pain must have meaning, even if we cannot discern it in this life. In nine, 99 times out of 100, we won't. But your pain must have meaning because your life is hidden. It's bound up with Christ and his sufferings. And whenever you suffer, it's for the sake of him who willingly suffered for you. It means that you come to see all things in your life, including your material possessions, as gifts from God that you're entrusted with, that you are a steward over, that you might steward over those things for his purposes. Think about our gospel lesson today, the parable of the rich fool who failed to see that his possessions were a means to glorify God. Everything is done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we give thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3. One commentator said it this way, and I can say it no better, so I'll leave you with this. The life of the believing child is amazingly simple. Faith asks no confusing questions. It trusts God to have the answers and is left with nothing better, nothing better to do than to enjoy with humble gratitude the gifts that God sends to his children. Truly, there is nothing better than that. May our Lord grant you such faith that you receive everything from him as his dear child. Amen.